0: Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way. Manifest to us, Jesus. Let us have our own epiphany of who he is and how we should respond to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Gary, where did Jonah flee to? Ah, Tarshish. Tarshish. I just had to laugh at myself because when I took my canonical exams for ordination, one of the questions in the very first section on Bible knowledge, which is something that I kind of pride myself on probably a bit too much. The question was, where did uh, did Jonah flee to instead of going to Nineveh? And I had no clue whatsoever. I just wrote down Damascus. It was the first question the Board of Examining Chaplains asked me. And as soon as I got back to the office, I looked it up. Found it was Tarshish, had that aha moment. Of course, I should have remembered that. And I asked Gary just because he happened to be walking by the office and he got it right immediately, and he's had it over my head ever since. And it was in Isaiah, that's the connection there. It's in the Isaiah passage. It's just a funny. It has no connection whatsoever to what I'm saying this morning or afternoon. I just had to laugh at myself. I think you should probably add that you never imagined your wildest dreams, I know. Oh, that's not quite true. Okay. Okay. Epiphany. It's one of those feasts, those holidays that we would say in our culture that um, I, makes me very grateful to have come into the Anglican tradition because I had no knowledge, idea of what Epiphany was, that it was a, a thing, probably up until I went to my very first Anglican parish and realized that when they had their nativity scene out, the wise men were far off at Christmas Day and the wise men were journeying toward the nativity until Epiphany. An aha moment for myself that the wisdom of the church calendar, the wisdom of the patterns of worship over time that the church has built up and accumulated can teach us a lot because textually speaking, uh, these are separate events. The wise men, as they're there in a lot of nativity scenes, but the word for child is not that of baby in Matthew, whereas the word for Baby in Luke is infant, and so these, these events are distinct, and yet we collapse them so much in our imagination. And there's something about the wisdom of our prayer book and the wisdom of the church calendar to, to separate them out, to, to elongate them a little bit. It's one of those things that I just love about the Anglican tradition now that I, that I know a little bit and that I've been in the pattern more and more. I had no idea what epiphany was until coming into this tradition, and so it makes me very grateful just for the pattern of worship that we have. Another thing is, did you hear those readings, just how resonant they are, the wisdom of the lectionary, having proper readings for these major feasts where you can just hear over and over again light and gifts and Gentiles, this unfolding of how all of Scripture works together to tell one grand story culminating in Jesus, that in Jesus' coming, all people are invited. Come on in, there's room for everybody. So there's just something beautiful about epiphany, and it'd be great if that tradition came back, a large epiphany, because it, there's so much meaning and depth. We could go into all sorts of things with these readings because of how they coalesce so beautifully around this idea of Christ sent to all nations, the Gentiles. But I'd like to focus on two aspects of the gospel just briefly. Why did the Magi come to Jesus? And then why might we do the same? Magi in verse 2, their self-reported reason for coming to Jesus is this. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Why are Gentiles doing this? I mean, They even say he's the king of the Jews, and yet they are Gentiles coming to worship him. They, they know something that not even the Jews of the time know, that certainly Herod doesn't know. They know that Jesus is king in fact, rather than in mere pretense. See, Herod's a king, but in some way it's in pretense. He doesn't rule his kingdom. Not ultimately. God does. Emperor Caesar Augustus is the emperor of what at that time was the, be- the biggest, the best, the most powerful, the richest empire to ever grace, if you could put it that way, the face of the earth. And the emperor was no more an emperor of Rome, in reality, than Herod was. Because God is king, ultimately. Our country began by throwing off a king. And so in certain political orderings... We give ourselves over to certain myths, to certain misunderstandings, and one of them is that of autonomy. I think it's part of our culture, and it's not a bad thing, surely. Republican democracy has made some great improvements over the old systems, but it can inculcate in us an understanding that really we are the masters of our own domain, that we are autonomous, laws unto ourselves, auto-self, namas-law, laws unto ourselves. And that is a myth. It is a lie because you, I, you have a king. There's something in your life that is ultimate, the ultimate authority, the ultimate thing to which you give your worship. The question is, is it Jesus or is it an idol? You have a king. Is it Jesus? Because in reality, that's the only person. God is the only being to whom worship should be given. Ultimate allegiance, ultimate bowing down, ultimate submission. You have a king. His name is Jesus. That's why these magi come to worship. They know something about Jesus, his identity, that he is king in a truer sense than any king they've ever met. In this text, they're called wise men. That develops in the tradition to eventually become kings, probably because of the influence of some of those lectionary readings we hear. Psalm 72, kings of Arabia and Sheba shall bring gifts. Even if they were kings, they are no more king than Herod or Caesar. Because God, Jesus, this baby, he is king. He is worthy of our worship. So that's why they do it, but why might we? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold, the gift you give to a king. Frankincense, the gift you give to a priest. And myrrh a burial spice. And this is something I think they don't know, but something we only see on this side of the cross and resurrection. At the very beginning of his life, this little hint is given that the destiny of this child's life is death. Myrrh is a burial spice. You have to die to be buried. And so here we see just in preview, in miniature, in in the subtlest of ways, that maybe the reason why we can come and worship him is because not that we give him our gifts in order to get something from him, but that first, he is a gift. How many times in business or in politics, quid pro quo holds? I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do something for you because I want you to do something for me. And yet, the gospel is... Counter to that logic. That we don't give God gifts. We don't give him our worship. We don't give him our time, treasure, talents. To get something from him. But rather because we recognize. That he first loved us and gave us. The gift. Of Jesus. So do we come to worship? Do we go to inklings? Do we come to Wednesdays, Sundays. Bible studies, small groups. Because we're trying to get something from God by showing Him our gifts, or is it because we realize, recognize, have received the gift that Jesus is? That's where it has to start. Receiving the gift of the Christ, receiving the gift of the one who's destined to die for us in our place, coming out the other side in victory of the resurrection. When we receive the gift that Jesus is, then we can bring our gifts not wanting anything from God in response as if he owes us for what we bring him, but realizing that out of thankfulness and love from the love that he first showed us, it reorients our entirety of our being, our souls, our lives back toward thanksgiving. That's why we should give him our gifts. Pray with me. God, make the reality of Jesus' kingship more of a reality in our lives. And help us remember that everything we do for you can, should, must, needs to come as a response to your prior gift of love and grace in Jesus. Let us never think we earn your favor. We earn your salvation. But recognize that our lives as Christians is a response to the prior gift of salvation in Jesus and we ask this in his name amen, amen.